If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 4 and to a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, My hope today is that we hear this story as if for the first time and that the beauty of it will fill us with a, a love for Christ and a love for others and a joy that Jesus has revealed himself as living water and as the Savior of the world. During our Fellowship of the Word gatherings, we almost always talk about the principle that we call text and framework. If you're not familiar with it, it's the idea that we all come to the text of of Scripture with a framework, with a a worldview or a way of thinking that has influence on how we read and understand God's Word. We could also say that it's like wearing a, a pair of glasses that's made up of our family histories, our life experiences, our theological convictions, and so many other things, and we view the world and the Bible through those particular lenses. Now, a framework is not necessarily a bad thing, but we want to be careful that we're always allowing God's Word to speak its truth to us without us imposing our framework on it. When we come to a passage like John 4, uh, 1 to 42, the account of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, many of us arrive at this passage with a lot of very specific framework about who this woman was and about what Jesus was communicating to her. Some of that framework could be accurate, but some of the images that we have seen maybe in movies portraying this conversation or some of the tone and inflection that we've heard about it from sermons or from Bible studies may in fact keep us from the heart of what God's word is saying to us. We also bring many cultural assumptions that we have that could be harmful to properly understanding this story. I think we even bring applicational framework. Uh, We who are Christians tend to see this conversation primarily as a model for how to share the gospel with others. And while There are certainly many things that we can learn from Jesus about how we share the good news. We should remember that John has written his gospel primarily so that we would believe in Jesus and find life in his name. So we need to understand how this story serves that end first before we draw any evangelism tips from it. As we talk about the potential assumptions that we bring to this passage, here's, here's the irony. The same principle regarding framework and and regarding framework is actually what made it difficult for people like Nicodemus or the disciples or even this woman at the well to grasp what Jesus was telling them. Remember what we saw last week, that Jesus is the greatest of all prophets. He's the greatest of all prophets, given God's spirit without measure, and he came from heaven itself to speak heavenly truth to our souls. But we are very earthly, especially in our framework. We are, we are very tied to the world and, and what we see and what we understand about this world, such that when Jesus talks about things like birth or water or food or light, we hear these concepts in primarily earthly ways. But Jesus is always trying to expand our minds to think beyond this world and into what we might call the, the heavenlies, where he's from. To borrow his own illustration, if we put all of Jesus' heavenly thoughts into the wineskins of our earthly thinking, then his realities are going to burst them. We can't handle it. 
But there's hope, I think. There's hope for us to hear him and understand what he's saying. We are people of this earth, yes, but we are also made for something greater. Eternity has been set in our hearts, and every human being has a soul that will never die. So it's not as if Jesus comes speaking a foreign language that we can't understand and can never understand. Rather, he's speaking a language that we all know deep down in our souls. But it's as if the constant hum of the world that we, that we see and hear and taste and touch and smell, that that is all so overwhelming that it's difficult for us to, to step back and go into the depths that he's calling us to. We need the Spirit to awaken us to these spiritual realities. And here in John 4, we are invited into another conversation that meets us in our earthly thinking and expertly draws our minds into a new and a heavenly way of thinking. It's a conversation that's very much like the one that Jesus had with Nicodemus in chapter 3, though th these two people could be, could, could, could be anything but, th they're very different. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> they're very different. Uh, Nicodemus was a Jewish man who was highly revered in society and who seemed to follow all of the laws that were laid out before him. You remember he approaches Jesus secretly at night thinking that he has a pretty good idea about who he is. But the woman in this story, who is actually never given a name like Nicodemus is, she's a Samaritan with likely little to no education whose relationship history is at the very least heartbreaking and possibly a little bit scandalous. Jesus is the one who approaches her, and he does it in a public way in the middle of the day. Very similar people, but also very different. And yet, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and to the woman, we find in both discussions that he is drawing out their hearts and ours to reveal that we have been looking for joy and satisfaction and salvation in all the wrong places. As Jesus speaks to this woman, we begin to see ourselves in her, and we hear the voice of Jesus diagnosing all of the longings that we have and all of the frustrations that we have felt and helping us to see that he knows everything that we have ever done in our quest for joy. And he alone can redeem us for his glory. So he says to the woman at the well, and he says to each of us, stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than Jesus. That's our big idea for today. Stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than Jesus. Stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than Jesus. Today we're going to break this story into five parts. We'll read a section and then discuss it, and we have a lot to cover. So we're going to go all the way through verse 42 of chapter 4. Let's begin with verses 1 through 7, which we can simply title like this, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Essentially, John is setting up the scene for the conversation that begins in the middle of verse 7. So let's read up to the place where that conversation begins as we think about the fact that Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well and tells her to stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than him. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as, he, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. But we can't be sure why, that upon hearing that the Pharisees were aware that of his growing influence and, and ministry, that Jesus decided to leave Judea and go back to Galilee, it could have been that he wanted to avoid even the perceived clash with John the Baptist, uh, but it's not really clear. Whatever the specific reasons, Jesus knew that it was time for him to move on and to minister in a different place. And he was heading north to Galilee, which required him to walk straight through an area known as Samaria. The text says that he had to go through Samaria, which seems to indicate not only the, a geographical necessity, but also maybe a divinely orchestrated itinerary for him to go through this notorious area. We should note a few things about Samaria. Uh, during the time in Israel's history when the kingdom was divided, Samaria served as the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, and when that kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians, the people of the northern, uh, the northern tribes intermarried with the Assyrians, causing them to not only lose the, the purity of their Jewish lineage, but also the purity of their religion as they were influenced by the false worship of their captors. The result was that many Israelites, especially those of the southern tribes, viewed them as a tainted version of the Jewish people and of the Jewish faith. A Samaritan was looked down as some kind of a, a half-breed that was cut off from true, from true Judaism. However, the Samaritans just sort of doubled down on their identity they set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and they adopted the first five books of Moses as the scriptures, saying that the rest was not uh, a part of their scriptures. At the point in history that John is talking about, that, that temple on Mount Gerizim had been destroyed, uh, though the mountain itself still loomed large in the eyes of the Samaritans, as we'll see. Uh, in fact, it likely liter literally loomed large over the city of Sychar, where Jesus and his disciples stopped to rest on the jour their journey. We're, we're told here that there was a well there, a well that Jacob had given to Joseph. You can see that in Genesis 48:22, And in fact, that well is pretty easy to identify to this very day. You can go to Jacob's well, and it's still filled with water. Uh, and Jesus is said to have sat down at that well to rest as his disciples headed into town to buy food. It's a scene that obviously reveals the fact that the word became flesh, that Jesus was 100% God, uh, while also being a human being that was capable of getting tired. And it made sense that he was tired because it was the sixth hour of the day, or what we would call noon. So the, the, highest, uh, the sun was highest as it would be in the sky. It's a hot moment in the day that they were traveling. Verse 7 then simply says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, let's say three things about that statement and about Jesus's conversation partner. First, she was a woman. She was a woman. I don't think there's any way that we can fully grasp the lower status of women in this time and culture, but let me offer a couple of quotes that may give us an idea and also reveal some of the scandal that's, that's underneath this story uh, that we kind of get hints of in the reaction of the disciples later on. Uh, in his commentary on these verses, Bruce Milne cites two, uh, two teachings of rabbis of the time. The first, first the rabbis counseled this. 
one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. And second, it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. That's what the rabbis taught. So uh, to say the very least, women were not given the same rights and privileges as men. They did not receive the same education, nor was it common for them to work or hold any kind of place of prominence within society. They were looked down on. They were held in suspicion. So she was a woman. We should also note that she was a Samaritan. We've already mentioned the animosity and division that existed between Jews and Samaritans, so I'm not going to belabor that point. We'll see a little bit more even later on. However, I think it would be helpful to pause here and to consider this encounter, maybe not so much from Jesus' eyes, but from the woman's eyes. She's approaching the well to find what? She finds a man who was a Jew. As the story goes on and we learn more about her, we find out that this could actually be the worst of all scenarios for her. Her experience with men seems to have been filled with disappointment and heartache and maybe worse. And when it comes to the Jewish people, she has almost certainly been treated as an outcast. So Jesus then, because she doesn't know exactly who Jesus is, Jesus is an individual who represents to her two systems in her culture that had likely caused more problems for her than anything else. As she approaches Jesus, we might imagine that she was looking at the ground just praying that this guy didn't say anything to her. I think we should recognize that the thought that men and religion have caused a lot of problems in our world and maybe in our own individual lives is actually deeply relevant, isn't it? In saying that, I'm not proclaiming an innocence or a unique purity over women, but we should all be able to acknowledge that men throughout history have misused their power and caused a lot of harm. Religious systems also have and continue to cause harm. Placed together, these two powerful systems often become a deadly cocktail. News about the abuses of power within our own denomination make it clear that men with power who lack character placed in positions of authority within religious systems can cause almost more damage in the world than anything else. So when people women in particular, are skeptical of these systems or the combination of them, then they should not receive our ridicule or our mistrust. They should receive our compassion and our patience. And I think like Jesus, we should be open to just having a conversation and doing a lot of listening. I think one final thing we should note from the, the setting of this scene is that she was a, a woman uh, she was a Samaritan, but she was also going to a well. She was going to a well. It's Jacob's well, and the mention of that patriarch could in fact remind us of other encounters between men and women at wells throughout Israel's history. Tell me what you think about this later on, but here's what I think. In Genesis 24, the servant of Abraham goes to a well and asks Isaac's future wife, Rebecca, a very similar question to the one that Jesus asked this woman. A few chapters later, in Genesis 29, Isaac's son Jacob, fleeing from his brother Esau, met one of his future wives, Rachel, at a well. 
Even Moses met his wife after an encounter at a well in Exodus chapter 1. And now we find a woman who, as we will see, had already been in multiple marriages, walking to Jacob's well and meeting a man. Now, I'm not seeking in any way to imply some sort of romantic or inappropriate air in this story. Rather, I want us to consider that maybe the scene itself is signal, signaling that there's something deeper happening here than a woman coming to a well to draw water. Maybe her arrival at Jacob's well is meant to remind us of the drama of something like Jacob and Rachel and Leah and the fact that we're all looking for love, but no human relationship can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Maybe Jesus sits at this well as the one that this woman has been looking for all along. Well, their conversation begins in verse 7. And let's title verses 7 through 18, We Are All Longing for Spiritual Water. Verses 7 to 18, We Are All Longing for Spiritual Water. So we saw at the beginning of verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and then the conversation begins. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. On the surface, Jesus' Jesus's request in verse 7 is simple. Uh, but the woman, steeped in the prejudices of her day, sees the scandal of that request. And she boldly asks how Jesus can make such a bold request of her in light of the fact that, as John parenthetically points out, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, or maybe more specifically, Jews don't use dishes that Samaritans use. She assumes that she understands everything about who Jesus is because she knows his gender and she knows his religion. But Jesus makes it clear that she really doesn't have any idea who she's talking to, and she doesn't know about the gift of God that he can offer her. He says that if she did know these things, she would have asked, asked him for living water. Now, we hear that phrase as not just living water, but we hear it something as like life-giving water. But it would have been very natural for her to understand it simply as, as running water in a way that a, a stream that is flowing is not stagnant. It's, it's living. It's alive. 
in verses 11 and 12, she takes a bit of offense, actually, at the presumption that this man seems to have insulted her ancestor Jacob's well. So she says this water was good enough for Jacob. It's good enough for his sons. It was even good enough for his livestock. I know that you Jews refuse to drink out of the jars of Samaritans, but would you also insult our common forefather Jacob? Do you think you're greater than Jacob? Do you think you can provide better water than him? To which Jesus says, yes, I do. He tells her that she could draw Jacob's water for him and for her, but they would still be thirsty eventually. But not so with the water that he could give. The water that he could give her would be like a spring. Not that she would have to walk to, but that, she, that, would, that could continually quench her thirst. Wouldn't that be a dream come true? Can you imagine? Can you imagine water that you didn't have to walk miles to get? Of course you can. Because <laughs> we have indoor plumbing. We experience this miracle in some measure every day. And so we might miss some of the wonder of this promise to this woman. And yet we can look around our world and even at the water crises in our own nation, sometimes in the richest of places, and we can recognize that the reality of a continual supply of clean water is a miracle. But what if we didn't even have to drink it? What, what if our thirst was always quenched? At that thought, the woman who had moments ago been the biggest champion of Jacob's well uh, is ready to move on. <laughs> she says, if this stranger can help her from having to come out to the well in the heat of the day to gather water, she'll, she'll take that gift, sure. Now, up to this point, it's in some ways, Jesus and the woman are having two different conversations, aren't they? She's talking about water, and Jesus is talking about eternal life and the gift of, of salvation. She is stuck on earth. And he is speaking the heavenly truths. So Jesus takes a sharp turn to help her see that her real thirst goes much deeper than needing to drink water. He wants her to realize that she has been searching for the living water that he is offering her all her life. Just not at a well. So Jesus invites her to bring her husband to the well. And when she says she has no husband... Jesus supernaturally describes the story of her relationship in a sentence. He says, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're now with is not your husband. Now, such a comment seems harsh at first, but I don't think that Jesus is trying to shame this woman, in, in part because I think the story of these husbands is probably a lot more complicated than we've made it out to be. The framework that I have built around this passage is that this woman had been married and divorced five times and was likely an adulteress. That's my framework. Why else would she be coming to this well at noon when no one else is there except to hide her shame? And yet, and yet later on in the story, she's not rejected by the town as some sort of pariah. She's listened to immediately by everyone there. All that to say that her story, again, is likely more complicated than we've come to believe. Divorce was certainly a poss possibly part of her story. But so too was widowhood. Brides were often much younger than their husbands, and so it is not out of the question to imagine that she had been married to a number of older men who had preceded her in death. The fact that she'd been married so many times may also have been culturally influenced. Remember, as a woman, she had few options for survival outside of marriage. She couldn't get a job. She couldn't start her own business. 
in a Christianity Today article from 2015, I read in 2015 that, ha- 2015 that has stuck with me since then. Uh, it's titled, Was the Samaritan Woman Really an Adulteress? Uh, Lynn Kohick explores all of these and other possibilities. At one point, she writes this. It is more likely that her five marriages and current arrangement were the result of unfortunate events that took the lives of several of her husbands. Perhaps one or two of them divorced her, or maybe she initiated divorce in one case. As for her current situation, maybe she had no dowry and thus no formal marriage, meaning her status was similar to a concubine's. Perhaps the man she was currently with was old and needed care, but his children didn't want to share their inheritance with her, so he gave her no dowry document. Perhaps he was already married, making her his second wife. Now, the point of all this is to say that rather than to to pile on the Samaritan woman's situation and highlight the sinfulness of it, that, that maybe we should think about, we should Maybe if we, it would be closer to Jesus' intention if we see her in her the brokenness of this world and we see the difficulty of living in broken systems in a broken society. Had she sinned in some way that put her in this situation? Probably. But had she also been deeply hurt by others and even by her culture and by the circumstances that came to her? I think so. And she was thirsty. She was thirsty in part because she'd gone to all the wrong wells looking to be satisfied, as we all do. God says this in Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Marriage and relationships are a reflection of the love of God, but they are a dry well if we are seeking living water and eternal life and salvation in them. They cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Maybe Jesus, in pointing out both the sin and the pain that's associated with this woman's past relationships, was not looking to shame her, Maybe he was seeking to say, after all that you've experienced, I know that you're still thirsty. And I can offer you living water that will quench the longings of your soul. Such is what he says to every human heart, isn't it? He calls us away from the earthly things that leave us unsatisfied so that we might find our deepest satisfaction in him. We keep turning to broken cisterns and he keeps calling us back to himself because he's a fountain of living water. Well, the focus of the conversation changes slightly in verses 19 through 26 in a section that we'll title, We Are All Longing for Spiritual Worship. We're all longing for spiritual worship, not just spiritual water, but we are all longing for spiritual worship. Let's pick up the conversation in verse 19 after Jesus has explained her relationship history, we read this in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. 
for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's another piece of framework that I brought to this passage, and it's the idea that the change in subject that occurs here was this woman's way of shifting the conversation away from her personal life, that that's what's going on. But again, I found uh, this article by Kohik helpful. She writes this, For most early church and medieval interpreters, the Samaritan woman was a careful, polite seeker a sinner who once illumined truthfully witnessed her faith to others. But, the but in the Reformation, she became a symbol of promiscuity. Whereas the church fathers believed Jesus was revealing himself to her, says historian Craig Farmer, the reformers suggested that Jesus was revealing herself to her to get her to see her sin and repent. Now, I'll be honest, I think that's probably painting the reformers with a broad brush, but I think it's also okay to say that they may have missed what the people before them had seen. Namely, that having heard Jesus reveal her deepest secrets, she perceives that he is a prophet and doesn't try to divert the conversation, but rather tries to bring him her deepest questions that she's been longing for answers for. Because besides her relationship history, it was her status as a Samaritan that had shaped her life more than anything else. And when she sees that Jesus is not like some of the men that she had met who were just going to give her all of their talking points about why she was wrong, she wants to hear what he has to say. Jesus has listened well to her, and, you know, and she believes that he can provide the answers that she needs. And the question is, is about where to worship. It pits Jerusalem against Gerizim, to which Jesus responds by saying that neither place is ultimately the concern. Once more, Jesus, the bringer of heavenly truth, tells her to stop thinking in such an earthly way. He tells her that true worship, the worship of the Father, that the Father desires and that her soul was made for is worship in spirit and truth. It's worship that flows from the spring that Jesus alone can place inside his children. He's going to say later in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life and the spirit who who indwells those who trust in Christ brings satisfaction to our souls and enables us to worship as we are intended to not on some specific mountain but anywhere that we go and how is that worship made possible i don't know if you noticed it but twice jesus says it's because there's an hour that is coming you remember what the hour means in John's gospel? It's a theme that he brings up often. It's the hour of Jesus' glorification through his crucifixion. Jesus, in dying on the cross, tears the curtain of the Holy of Holies so that all of God's children, regardless of their ethnic heritage or their physical location, can worship him perfectly. Jesus cuts across this woman and every person's desire to say that they are the that they or their group are better or more worthy or closer to the truth. He tells her, don't be so concerned about where you worship. 
Rather be concerned about who you worship and how you worship him. Worship God in Christ and worship him in spirit and in truth. And the only way that's going to be possible is through my death. She can tell that he knows what he's talking about. (laughs) So she says, you know, I thought I knew who you were a few times throughout this conversation, but I'm starting to think that you're someone that I never expected to meet. Because you're giving me all of the answers that I've been looking for my whole life. And I've been told that that's something that only the Messiah can do. And Jesus says, the one that you're, that's speaking to you, the one that's telling you all these things, is also the one who is able to give you all of them. He says, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. And then the disciples got to show up. Such bad timing, doesn't it feel like it? They interrupt this beautiful conversation. But it becomes another opportunity for Jesus to teach, and he teaches them a lesson. And I think this is the lesson of verses 27 through 38. It's that Jesus is never hungry. Jesus is never hungry. Let's look at verses 27 through 38. We're told that just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Which probably would be a question directed to the woman. Or, why are you talking with her? Which would obviously be directed towards Jesus. So the woman left her water, her water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So we hear the the confusion and even the suspicion in the disciples' potential questions, reminding us of just how radical it was for Jesus to be speaking to a woman and to be speaking to a Samaritan. But Jesus never allowed social mores to get in the way of his heart to see others find hope through the gospel, and neither should we. At the arrival of the disciples, the the woman heads back to the town, leaving her water jar, John tells us. Little detail, isn't it? A small detail, but but has to speak to something greater. And and maybe it speaks to the fact that the water that she had been so concerned about was now the last thing that she was thinking about. She saw a, a deeper need within herself, and she wondered if maybe, just maybe, Jesus could meet that thirst. And she wanted her community to meet this man as well. So she told the town to come and to meet Meet this man who had told her everything that she had ever done. Could he actually be the Christ? Could could this man be the one who is never going to let me down? 
who will never forsake me? Could he be the answer to all of my spiritual questions? Well, the people of the town are intrigued enough to come out, and so they come. And you can see them, as it were, coming. Meanwhile, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he talks about sowing and reaping later on, which I'm afraid we just don't have time uh, to get into today. But what, what I want to point out is that Jesus models the life that he's calling this woman into. So he expertly moves from the illustration about water to an illustration about food because that's what the disciples are concerned about. The woman was concerned about water. The disciples are concerned about food. Fine, let's talk about food, said Jesus. They wanted Jesus to eat, but he says he's not hungry because he has food to eat that they don't know anything about. And just like Nicodemus with the new birth, and just like the woman with the living water, they are confused. Why? Because they're thinking about food in purely physical, earthly terms. But Jesus says that the food that satisfies him is doing the will of his Father. He shows them that what we are all truly longing for and the satisfaction that we are seeking is found in accomplishing God's will in our lives. Jesus, the model of what God intends for all humanity, shows us that the water that we are seeking and the food that we are hungry for is finally found in doing God's will. That's how we'll be satisfied. We seek to satisfy our souls in so many places, don't we? Whether you are a child or a teenager or an adult, a man or a woman, we are all seeking joy and satisfaction, and naturally we will not seek it in Jesus. Our obsession with physical things is obvious because it's physical things that we seek satisfaction in, like food or drink or sex or drugs, along with relationships or work, and so many other things that we seek to fill ourselves with. But we're created to do God's will. And the deepest hunger and the deepest thirst that we have is satiated only in Jesus and only in following him and doing the will of the Father. So here Jesus stands, and he is the example of the one who not only models a life that is never hungry, but he is the living water, and he is the bread of life that we are longing for. Jesus was never hungry. He never felt in himself a longing for something deeper. He never felt the need for some joy that he could find elsewhere because he was always doing the Father's will. And if we want to be satisfied deep in our souls, it's found in doing the will of God. Notice finally, verses 39 to 42, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. After that, this interlude with the disciples, we have the conclusion. It says, many Samaritans, verse 39, from the, that town believed in him. Remember John's emphasis on belief. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think that if the disciples had been shocked that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman, then they probably had no way of processing the fact that Jesus was going to stay in a Samaritan town 
and accept their hospitality for two whole days. That had to be radical. But as the Samaritans themselves testified, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not the Savior of a particular ethnic group. And one day, the disciples would be sent out to tell the good news. And where would Jesus send them? You need to go to Jerusalem, and you need to go to Judea, and you need to go to where? Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, because he's the Savior of the world. We find that these Samaritans first believed because of the woman's testimony, they say. But in the end, they believed because they had similar experiences with Christ. You just wonder how many conversations Jesus had in those two days that were so much like this one. And in each one, he met people exactly where they were. He saw all of their longings. He saw all their needs. He saw their sin. He saw the way that they had been sinned against. And he held out living water to them, the living water of himself. And so he comes to all of us, doesn't he? And he knows our stories. He knows everything about you. Just like this woman said, he knows, he, knew, he knows my whole story. And the same thing is true for every single one of us and every Samaritan that Jesus talked to. They could all say the same thing, and we can all say the same thing. He told me everything I've ever done, because he knows everything that we have ever done. He comes to us, he comes to our friends, and comes to our neighbors, and he's more compassionate and more understanding and more forthright even than we could ever be. And whoever comes to Jesus discovers that he not only knows what they're looking for, but that he is the only one that can satisfy them. I wonder maybe if we could close with just the, the image of that woman's water jar. I don't know what it looked like. Just imagine what you will, a, a first century water jar <laughs> would look like sitting there by the well. And she left it there because her eyes had been taken off all of these earthly needs that she had. And they'd been drawn into the heavenly satisfaction of the living water of Jesus. I wonder if this afternoon we kind of need to, we need to think about how we can leave our water jars. How we can leave the things that we think will quench the thirst of our hearts. Maybe for the first time we need to find in Jesus forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him. Or maybe we just need to, to set aside all of the things that we've been turning to to quench our thirst and be reminded that it's only in doing the will of our Father in heaven and walking by faith that we're going to be satisfied deep in our souls. That nothing else will cause us to find our thirst quenched and our hunger satisfied. And so this text, as it were, if you can imagine yourself holding on to that water jar, it's as if Jesus is pulling it out of our hands. Whatever it is that we're seeking satisfaction in, he's, he's taking it and he's setting it down next to this well and saying, just leave that here. Stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than Jesus. Could we pause and let the Spirit apply this truth to each of our hearts? And then I will close us in prayer. But let's take a moment of silence now.
Father, we confess that we, even we who have found in Christ eternal life and salvation, that we keep going back to broken cisterns, keep trying to draw water from wells that will not satisfy us completely. Help us to see your will, your will of faith in you, walking in your ways, obedience to your word, that this is where our thirst will be quenched. Lord, let all the other gifts that you have simply be a reminder of the greatest gift, the gift of Christ. Lord, would you pull these empty water jars from our hands, help us to stop looking for living water in anything or anyone other than you. And Lord, would you even today give us a sense of the satisfaction that you bring us in Christ. So often we are numb to these things, but would you fill us just in your kindness, God, would you give us a sense of the joy and the peace that comes from following you this day so that we can keep coming back to you and find your spirit in us to be this well that just springs up continually, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives, that we are satisfied, not thirsty, because we found life in you. What a miracle, Lord, that we have this conversation. Thank you for, for John and the fact that he's recorded this by the power of your spirit. We thank you for this woman. We don't even know her name. And yet, she speaks so deeply to us. She is all of us. And thank you, Jesus, for being the Savior of the world. I ask all this in your name. Amen.